At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare all these guys who run these organizations who talk about analytics they have one thing in common they're a bunch of guys who ain't never played the game and they never got the girls in high school and they just want to get the game Decent's Hardwood Handicappers. As you guys look at me, you see the backwards hat, the uh, gray socks, the funky outfit, and you say, now this guy's a chump, am I right? No, geek. Now here's your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. What's up, folks? Welcome in. It's another Sunday edition of Hardwood Handicappers here on VCN, the Sports Betting Network. we got a good show on tap for you today. A lot of smart people, so you don't have to hear me blow V8 for a really long time. And we got a lot of topics to cover. Aaron Renning, professional sports handicapper, is going to be with us in 15 minutes. Get his thoughts on Game 2 of the NBA Finals, where he's at. Very high on the Celtics, much like me. See if he... Uh, uh, echoes that sentiment that, uh, you know, the market's not giving the Celtics enough credit in this series. Raphael Barlow, director of scouting, NBA Big Board, will be with us at the 3.45 p.m. Pacific time mark. There is still an NBA draft that is quickly approaching. You can still bet on that NBA draft. So we'll get Raphael's thoughts on the impending draft. And then Mark Schindler uh, coming up from Basketball News. A lot of topics to go over with Mark. We're going to talk a little WNBA with him and also get his thoughts on what's going to go down in the NBA finals. And speaking of the WNBA, our weekly hit with Danielle Alvari, who is, uh, from what I understand, taking part of wedding season. She's not getting married. She's coming back from a wedding. Uh, I don't know enough people to get invited to a wedding. I actually got invited to my first wedding in my life. It'll be next month. A friend that moved to the Czech Republic is coming back to Las Vegas for some reason to get married here. And I get to go. So I'm very excited. It's a weird segue. Uh, But regardless... We got a lot going on here today. We also got breaking news in the NBA. Actually, we got two bits of breaking news. Uh, the one that's important, Andre Iguodala is not going to play tonight for the Golden State Warriors. He is out with injury. The other news is that Quinn Snyder is not going to be head coach of the Utah Jazz, but we'll get to that a little bit later in the program. So the Iguodala news is the natural jumping off point to where we begin our show today. Game two of the NBA Finals is upon us. Tip time set for two hours from now, probably a little bit more than that. And where we're at from a number standpoint not really surprising. Golden State Warriors right now, four and a half point favorite. Total of 215 or 214, depending on where you like to shop for your numbers. Circa sitting at 214, market low. South Point and others sitting at 215, which would be a market high. So whenever you start analysis of anything, we'll get to the basketball stuff uh, at some point, of course. But I wanted to start with the number and the total and where we're at with this game as a whole, because the market loves itself a bounce-back spot, and here we are again with the market loving itself a bounce-back spot. Right now, if you look up on vcin.com and check out the betting splits that we have available for all of you, 83% of the handle, 76% of the bets in on the Golden State Warriors, and that's only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Uh, Multiple shops, uh, if you go to Patrick Everson of Props.com, for example, who reported yesterday 
Take account five to one money beyond nine to one on Golden State War on the Golden State Warriors money line. Warriors up from a buck sixty to a buck seventy five. Eighty two percent of the early tickets over there are points bet. Fifty six percent of the early dollars though only. There is an overwhelming support for the Golden State Warriors here in this game too against the Boston Celtics. So let's focus first on the number that we're looking at here for this game because from a number standpoint, I will tell you right now that this makes no sense in any way, shape, or form for this number to not only be four and a half, South Point earlier today reached as high as five. Multiple books reached as high as five. And that seemed to be when the betting market, at least the other side of it, had enough, bought that back down, and we're back down to that four and a half across the board. So let's just start with our usual equation that we do, okay? Home court. Home court has been worth, like I have a crowd, uh, three and a half points up to this point. If you've been listening to the show, you've been watching the, you're listening to the podcast, watching anything on the edge, you know what the answer to that one was. Home court's worth three and a half points in this postseason. So we go back to game one. On Thursday, the betting market said that these two teams were equal. My personal feelings aside, which I do not believe that is the case, I believe the Boston Celtics are the better team, at the very least, you can probably talk yourself into these two teams being equals with one another on a neutral. But now we're up to four and a half here in the betting market. So what does that tell us? Well, the betting market's telling us that now, after a game in which the Golden State Warriors lost that rise as three and a half point favorite, obviously failed to cover losing as a favorite. Now, all of a sudden, a few days later, the Warriors are a full point better than they were about three days ago on Thursday when they lost to the Boston Celtics in game one. Why? It makes zero sense. You think when it comes to power ratings and when it comes to numbers, and this is my belief, you don't just move off of a result, right? So you're not going to, if you believed three and a half to be the proper number, you're not going to move to two all of a sudden because the Warriors failed to cover and lost outright in game one. The other hand, just because the spot is beneficial for the Golden State Warriors, the bounce back, the zigzag, whatever you want to call it, from a betting standpoint, if you're coming in today and laying four and a half with the Golden State Warriors, you are willingly taking a bad number because you feel like this spot benefits Golden State. And to me, I think that's just, it's a poor way to start off right off the bat. It, you want the best number possible. And when we're talking about these two teams, I don't think Golden State is better. So I'm already off the bandwagon when it's at three and a half, right? It was on Boston Celtics in game one. So now we're here at the point where we're up to four and a half. And again, spot be damned for me, you're getting no value here. You weren't getting value by my numbers in the first number, which was three and a half. And you're definitely got not getting any value when the number is a point higher because the Golden State Warriors just have to play better in this spot because they lost game one. It just doesn't make much sense to me. And I will say this now, before we move forward into the show, I, I know that the, the, the predominant way of thinking is results-based thinking. If this did not work, it was not the right move. I will tell you this now, that for me, looking at this number with four and a half, I took four and a half with the, uh, the Boston Celtics, regardless of results, for taking the number is the right play. Because, again, you're, you're talking about an inflated number up a point because of the situation the Warriors are in, as opposed to anything changing, Right. So that's where I, at least when you start this analysis, when it comes to the number, I think it's really important when you talk about that. So before we get forward to game two, let's go back to game one, which we're watching right now, and talk about some of the important topics that I think came out of game one. And there were some main talking points that I really wanted to hit on that came out of the results from Thursday that I think probably need to be dispelled to a certain extent. 
And we'll start with the first one, which is, of course, look, the Celtics, they came out in the fourth quarter. It was incredible. 40-point fourth quarter. They limit the uh, Golden State Warriors to 16 points. The asset, that aspect of which we will get to momentarily, they win 120-108. to 108. We know the final result. But the first talking point that I wanted to address coming out of that matchup was the Boston Celtics aren't going to shoot like that again. And you know what? You're probably right. In game one, Celtics go 21 to 41 from beyond the arc. They hit nine three-point attempts in the fourth quarter to overcome a, uh, overcome a double-digit deficit and win by double digits. The nine made three-pointers in the fourth quarter ties a finals record for most three-pointers made in a single quarter. And a lot of people are doing what Draymond Green did after the game, which was now he comes out and he says, Marcus Smart, Al Horford, Devin White, combined to go 15 to 23 from deep. To use uh, Draymond Green's words, we'll be fine. Right? Those three guys aren't going to combine to hit 15 three-pointers again. So are the Celtics going to hit 51.2% of their attempts from beyond the arc again? Nah, probably not. Are Marcus Smart and Al Horford, Devin White going to go 15 to 23 again? Nah, probably not. But here's the thing. Just using that simplistic way to look at what happened in this game and in that fourth quarter takes away from a couple of things. First is Boston is not like some aberration when it comes to three-point shooting. They had the second highest frequency of three-point attempts in the NBA postseason, 41.9% of their attempts after game one. That's, I'm talking about every single one of their attempts that they have taken in this postseason. 41.9% of them through game one of the NBA Finals have come from beyond the arc. As a team, they are shooting 37.7% from beyond the arc. So they are a high-efficiency, high-volume three-point shooting team. Should not come as a surprise that every once in a while they're going to have a really hot shooting night and shoot pretty well for the most part. Again, it's a team that takes a lot of threes and makes a lot of threes. And saying that hot shooting won't happen again completely ignores the other side of the coin here for the Golden State Warriors. Boston in the fourth quarter generated six wide-open three-point attempts. For those who don't know or don't remember, those the tracking data tracks those things up at NBA.com. Wide open is considered defender six feet or farther away. So the Celtics in that fourth quarter generate six of those. In the game itself, they generated 23 wide open three-point attempts against the Golden State Warriors. Unless you think like, hmm, yeah, you know what? So all right, it's one sh it's one game. The Warriors are a really good defensive team. Let's go back a little bit. If you include their series with Dallas, then Golden State opponents are averaging 23.7 wide open three-point attempts per game. It goes back to what we talked about throughout that entire series against the Mavericks. It's why I took a couple of kicks to the face in that series, betting on the Mavericks multiple times, because the Mavericks were getting the open looks. They just weren't knocking them down. And what happened in game one? Well, the Warriors, they had to pay for the open looks that they were giving up. So when you take away from that game, when you are when you come back and you say, yeah, it's a hot shooting night, not going to happen again, that's fine. But it's also not this shocking development that the Boston Celtics came out and shot the ball extremely well, given what we know about the Warriors' defense and given what we know about the Boston Celtics' offense. In short, the Celtics, who shot 40% on wide-open threes in this postseason up to this point, they're going to hit shots. And when you're giving them open shots, they're going to hit them at a high rate. So that's the first one. I think it's – and I'll get to the defensive aspect of their run in the fourth quarter, but I think it's a little silly to go back and go, that won't happen again. Don't have to worry about it. Number two – and we'll have more on this when we talk to ER. But the thought that Golden State dominated most of the game, and this was another Draymond Green talking point, but I've heard this you know, spouted by a few people. And my question is, they did? 
because they trailed at halftime. And in the second quarter, which they lost, they had an offensive rating of 91.7. They turned it over on 29.2% of their offensive uh, possessions or seven turnovers in that game. Steph Curry, who had 21 points in the first quarter on 7 of 11 shooting, went 0-2 from the floor with a turnover in the second quarter, and he was held scoreless. So when you're talking about they dominated the like most of the game, don't think that's the case. And then you look at the game-long numbers, and you realize that Golden State put up a 90.1 offensive rating in the half court. It's not good. Added only 0.5 points. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare for 100 possessions in transition overall not good i find it a little weird that we're talking about the warriors ah they dominated the entire game I don't think that was the case. Not the game that I watched and not the game that some of these numbers dictate. But let's not take my word for it. Aaron Rennie's going to join us on the other side. Let's ask him what he saw in game one. Am I barking up the wrong tree and looking at some of these numbers and thinking that the Celtics aren't given enough respect for the performance they put on in that game one, specifically defensively, and how we spin this forward into game two? And am I wrong in thinking that the market's getting a little nutty here in raising the power rating here up a point and making this number four and a half in favor of the Warriors today? All that and more. We're just getting started here on Hardwood Handicappers. Don't go anywhere. Let's continue the conversation. NBA Finals Game 2. It tips off later tonight, just after 5 p.m. Pacific time. Aaron Renning, professional handicapper, is nice enough to give us some time today, get his thoughts on what's going to go down in this game and in this series as we move forward. ER, good to talk to you, buddy. So let's just start here. Um, your thoughts on this series as we came into it before Game 1. What were you expecting in terms of just the series as a whole? I know you're high on Boston. It's been your highest power-rated team for a while. Uh, but when you looked at the advantages that the Celtics had, what kind of a series were you expecting? And were you surprised by anything in game one? You know, um, yes, no, good to be with you, JVT. Um, yeah, definitely uh, on the Boston side of the equation. I was really surprised, um, able to catch 140, 145 plus um, with uh, with the Celtics. And, you know, I thought just the way the series laid out, you know, they had played so many games against some, some very high competition you know, you can say injuries and this and that to, um, you know, the Nets, uh, the Bucks in Miami. But, you know, believe me, they're all still very good teams with a lot of talented guys. And, you know, I, I guess I certainly doubted myself a little bit in the third quarter of the first game, but mm-hmm. I was obviously happy 
that uh, Boston came back and, and won that game. You know, I, I thought probably too much was made about this uh, Golden State experience and championship pedigree, you know, the 123 games or whatever to Boston zero uh, in the NBA finals. But, you know, what the Celtics were able to do in beating, you know, KD and Giannis, Butler, et cetera, uh, to get there. And, you know, this is a team that's come up together, played together, and obviously played in some playoff wars themselves. So, wasn't really worried about that. And if you get a 40 16 fourth quarter uh, in favor of Boston, you know, it's really hard to say, uh, you know, the championship pedigree, you know, that was, uh, you know, five, five years ago when, you know, Curry and Thompson and Draymond were at their peak. So, um, yeah, wasn't really that surprised with anything that, that happened um, as far as what you saw. I mean, if anything, I was probably more surprised that Tatum was three of 17 from the field. Yep. So, and you kind of hit on something. This is something has been bugging me about the conversations around the series ER. And it's that when it comes to the analysis and the support for Golden State, it, it seems to be very subjective analysis. Ah, they've got more experience. Ah, game one's a better spot for them. Ah, they'll come back. They'll perform better than they would than they did in game one. And it's kind of driven me a little nuts because when I, and clearly I'm going to be biased, I've got futures on the Boston Celtics too. I bet them in a couple different ways in this series too. But like when you look at it, for me, everything keeps coming up Boston in different facets. I I think when we're talking about the way the market has handled this, overwhelming support in terms of game one. We're seeing it in out today in game two. Got to as high as five. Uh, There is this weird confidence in the Warriors that they're still this team that they were a few years ago. And I just don't see it, especially when you get past the core of Draymond Green, Steph Curry, and Klay Thompson. Yeah, that's just it. And, you know, Golden State has some real lineup issues uh, that they're facing that Boston just doesn't have, you know, that weakness in them. You know, when Golden State puts um, Draymond Green, Iguodala on the floor together, you know, that – you know, you don't have to guard those guys on the perimeter, uh, you know, whether they throw Gary or Peyton in there um, in this game as well, you know, you just don't have to guard those guys. And when you have a team like Boston that, you know, one through five can guard so well and switch and do everything, you know, that really makes it tougher uh, for Curry and some of the other scores. And on the flip side of that, when golden state goes to Thompson pool and Curry on the floor, well, you know, from a guarding perspective, that's going to put make it an uphill battle uh, for the Warriors. So, you know, obviously you continue to look at the three-point line. I thought Golden State uh, hasn't really guarded the three-point line all that well um, in the playoffs if you've really watched them. And, you know, some of that really fell on Draymond Green in the first game. So that was, you know, even more startling uh, for them. But, you know, it certainly Boston, some of those three-point shots that they made, from their lesser players. You cannot expect uh, those to continue to go in. But, you know, the bottom line is Tatum, I thought, awful uh, scoring the ball. Uh, again, 3 of 17 uh, in that first game where Curry uh, scored 34 and they still lost. So, you know, again, there's just some things that you need to see on the floor. And we're, I'm not sure Golden State's uh, capable of doing that enough to win the series. Yeah, and the thing for me, too, about that fourth quarter yard, because we, and we were just talking about this before we brought you on, which is, you know, I, I can agree with the sentiment that the Boston Celtics aren't going to shoot at the exact same clip that they did in game one. And in that fourth quarter, when they make nine three-point attempts, it is it is foolish to think that they can replicate that. 
But at the same time, you are it's ignoring the other part of the the coin, the, the other side of the coin, which is they held the Warriors scoreless for five minutes for a reason. I think when you look at them defensively, the Warriors have some questions. I put it this way. The Warriors have a bunch of shot makers, but I don't know if they have shot creators. And against a defense like Boston that can switch everything and keep a body in front of every single person, I think they're at a pretty big disadvantage. And you saw that, you know, going to the first quarter where Curry yep. was creating the shots. Boston did a poor job. I think there was probably an adjustment as far as playing to Golden State's pace as well. Um, so you had to adjust to that. So now, yes, where does Golden State turn if, you know, you're going to throw all these bodies and, you know, do a better job and adjust to Curry? You know, where is that more consistent offense uh, going to come from against what is a great Boston defensive team? You know, barring injuries, that's not going to change. Yep. So what do you make of situations and spots? Because uh, the buddy market clearly believes uh, that this is a bounce back and very good favor for the Golden State Warriors. I mentioned some of the betting split numbers and data. That's just courtesy of DraftKings. Uh, we're up to four and a half. We reached five in some spots today. Uh, is what it won. What do you think of the market betting this hand over fist now a full point more than we were talking about in game one? Uh, and is there a point where you get involved or because of where you're at with the futures perspective, you're going to sit this out? Yeah, I'm looking to probably sit this game out. Obviously, I was very happy uh, that Boston was able to win game one. It is a little bit of an exhale spot, but, you know, I like the extra day off for Boston. I would definitely lean uh, to that way to play them, uh, plus the points. So I have not involved yet. I mean, that's definitely the way I would look. And, you know, more than anything, I would love Boston to kind of steal another win. But, yeah, obviously Golden State backs to the wall need to win this game to, you know, pretty much have a shot uh, to win the series at this point. So uh, you would expect uh, a better defensive effort, but then, you know, that's another thing with the Warriors, you know, they played, you know, very strong defense the first couple months of the season and, you know, Draymond Green got hurt, fell off, but they just never kind of rekindled that and found uh, that defensive spark. Uh, and, you know, we'll see if they can get that back with uh, Iguodala, Peyton, et cetera, but you know, they're going to need it here. Uh, to win this game and obviously to make this a series. Yeah, we get the announcement right before we come on the air, too. Andre Guadalla will not play today. He has an injury. Okay. Uh, and it might, you know, it's ER. I don't know if it's Steve Kerr. Maybe it's a real injury, or maybe it's saying uh, Steve Kerr going, you know what? I can't play this guy, but I'm going to be too tempted to do it if he's active. I just, I got, I got to activate him because, like, some of those lineups, ER, when he put Draymond Green and Andre Guadalla together in the fourth quarter, from an offensive standpoint, it was ugly. Yeah, well, it's going to be ugly. That, and, yep. you know, that's what the, the point I was trying to make. And, like I said, if they go all offense, then your defense is going to be ugly. Yep. Boston just doesn't have that in their lineup, uh, really, for the most part, with how they're able to adjust unless they get into foul trouble uh, or something. So, uh, yeah, I would expect to see more Gary Payton uh, in this game. Maybe he picks these guys up full court. But, you know, it's a lot to ask of him at this point. All right, before we get out of here, obviously we've seen this total. we got a wide variety of numbers on the board right now. Uh, 215 is over at the South Point. 214 is at Circa and everything in between. Uh, I tended to th I wrote about this in the column today. I tend to think that this is an underplay. We opened up at 210.5. I thought that was kind of low for game one. Now we're on the opposite side of that spectrum. We're up to 215. Cleaning the glass had this as a 93 possession game in game one. I feel like there's, and if you get a little less efficiency from Boston, this looks like a game that's going to go under the total. What do you make of the number? Uh, I mean, I made it 214 JVT. I would okay. lean a little bit to the under and some of the reversals uh, from last game as far as Boston shooting, it, you know, Golden State shooting. I mean, there was a lot of shot making in that game for, you know, two of the better defensive teams 
uh, in the NBA this year, but I think I might wait to, and see if I get a better spot in D3 for an under. All right, ER, last 90 seconds, so we'll get you out of here on this last one. Jalen Brown's finals MVP after game one, right? Uh, I mean, him or Horford, obviously, but again, yeah. you know, older players, you know, saw Horford have that big game against the Bucs, and then he didn't do much of anything uh, in that next game. And it really, when you look at it, as far as how, you know, Golden State's throwing their better defenders, obviously Wiggins at Tatum, and, you know, Clay is guarding, um, Clay Thompson's guarding Brown, et cetera. Brown has a lot of opportunity. Brown has a lot of opportunity here to, to score. ER Sports One up on Twitter. Aaron, good to talk to you, man. Thank you for the time. All right. Thank you, guys. You got it. Aaron Renning, again, professional handicapper. We'll see where this number ends up. I would think that by the time we're going to be with you until essentially tip off a game two of the NBA Finals, um, I'm going to say that four and a half is not really going to go anywhere and it would stick around there. Um, and those fives, they're a little rogue. Not a lot of spots went to five. So I think that's going to be a spot where if a book needs a little bit of Celtics money, which some of them seem to be pretty lopsided, you flash a five, you get it, then you go back down to four and a half. All right. Coming up in 15 minutes, Raphael Barlow is going to join us again. Uh, we're going to talk a little NBA draft. Raphael coming up. Uh, of course, uh, we have the top of the order and a lot of noise and a lot of news coming around. Jabari Smith Jr. being the top pick. But when we come back, let's hear from some of these Warriors and talk about the adjustments for game two. Welcome to VEASAN's Hardwood Handicappers. Now here's your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. Major League Baseball season is in full swing, and you can play ball with the Peacock Major League Baseball Sunday leadoff challenge. Just draft your players and compete for free, up to $10,000 in prizes. Visit DraftKings.com slash Peacock for more information. Don't just watch your shows. Peacock them. Terms and conditions and other eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Yankees and Tigers on Peacock earlier today. Yankees getting the win there. Oh, boy. It's a, it's a big day for the John Von Tobel fantasy baseball team. Just going to let you know. Although I'm dead last by a mile, there's been a lot of injuries and a lot of issues, but a big day, it seems, uh, for the um, somewhat inappropriately named team that will not be named on, uh, on a public platform. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about what we're going to see later tonight. So to recap, we're talking about this number. And as I speak out here in Las Vegas, Station Casinos flashes to five on the board with a total of 215. So who knows? Maybe we get to five by the time we get to tip off. we got about an hour and a half to go until then. So wanted to bring up a couple of more things. I, I was, was kind of harping on some of the talking points that were coming out of game one and I wanted to build a little bit more on that. And the topic that I wanted to build on more, too, was going back to that run in the fourth quarter from the Boston Celtics, because we tend to focus so much on offense and it's the sexy thing. You look at that box score, you see 40 points in the fourth quarter. You see 51% shooting from three point range for the Boston Celtics. Offense is just so much more easy to, to put something on, right? It's more tangible. You can look at it. You can look at a box score and you can tell me how impactful an offensive player was. Defense, on the other hand, not just in basketball, but in any sport, is a lot. It's a little bit more subjective. You have to watch. You have to talk about it. You have to view it as opposed to quantify it numerically. And so, what we tend to forget about a run like what Boston went on in the fourth quarter was: yes, they hit nine three-point attempts. Yes, they scored forty points in the fourth quarter. But they also went on a seventeen to nothing run because their defense held the Golden State Warriors for just over five minutes, scoreless, 
right? That's a really big part of the equation. And why did they hold the Golden State Warriors scoreless? How did they do it? Well, if you look at some of the numbers, Harlow Valvogaris tweeted this out right after the game on Thursday. Celtics in the pick and roll defensively, quarters one through three, they switched at 18% of the time. In the fourth quarter, 29% of the pick and rolls, they switched. That's a difficult thing to handle if you're a team like the Golden State Warriors. So let's hear from Steph Curry, because he gave voice to this the other day in talking in media availability about the challenges of facing a defense like Boston, which switches, but also the way that you attack said challenges. Switching is designed to keep everything on the perimeter, keep bodies in, you know, in between the man and the basket, you know, try to force you into tough shots. But it also allows some confusion at times if you, you know, if you run your sets hard. One, if you get stops and you can run in transition because it's hard to match up and know where you're switching and all that type of stuff. And like I said, we've seen it before with, you know, Houston series, even OKC a, a little bit back in the day. Um, and they have the personnel to be able to do it. So it's uh, it's their bread and butter. It's what, you know, what worked for them to be a number one defense in the league. But there are ways to attack it. And like I said, we scored 100, 108 points. Um, you know, game one, that should be, you know, plenty to win a game. You know, we have to get stops ourselves on the other end uh, to allow our offense to do what it does. So when you over a shot over overshot Steph Curry, uh, when you talk about like the way that you attack this, because he brings up obviously it's Curry, he's a professional basketball player. There's a lot of good points there, but but it really it's just focusing on as we move forward here. And he said it, this is a Celtics team, which is why I have a lot of confidence in the series that is built to handle what the Warriors want to do. When you watch the game tonight, don't watch the ball. Watch everything off the ball when the Warriors are on offense. Watch those off-ball screens. Watch the cuts to the basket. Watch some of the dribble handoffs when it comes to actually on the ball, and you will see the ability of the Boston Celtics to switch, switch hard, and keep a body in front of every single one of these players that the Warriors have. And when they go small, and that was the other thing about the fourth quarter, and as the game went on, Ime Udoka, you went, you know what? Let's just go smaller. Let's play one big and let's see how this goes. And Zach Lowe brought up a number on his podcast earlier this week. In the 16 minutes in which the Celtics had one big guy on the floor, they, had, they were plus 31 in those 16 minutes. It, it speaks to the ability, if you're the Boston Celtics, if Al Horford's my lone big, or in situations, if Robert Williams is my lone big, I'm switching one through four. And actually, I'm switching one through five, and I'm going to be comfortable with it. In the fourth quarter, Steph Curry, there were a couple of moments that he had. Robert Williams got switched onto him in a pick and roll, and he had to hit a step back jumper over him, and he nailed it from mid range. But at the end of the day, just keeping a body in front of Curry changed things in that fourth quarter, and it's why they went scoreless. And there's and this isn't to say that there's no way that they can attack Boston. There's a lot of different ways you can go after switches. There's the classical ways in which you can go after an attack switch is slipping screens, slipping and sealing smaller defenders in the post, mismatch hunting. It's not something that the Golden State Warriors do in terms of finding the mismatch on the floor. And I'd also say when you're talking about hunting mismatches, it's a lot harder to do against the Boston Celtics team who's one through four and one through five is going to be Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Grant Williams, and Al Horford. Those are all above average at the worst on ball defenders. So which mismatch are you hunting there if you're the Golden State Warriors? And which player are you trusting to then go after that mismatch in an isolation situation? And I think that's when I go back to the thing that I used with uh, ER there in a couple of minutes ago. The Warriors have a bunch of shot makers. They do, but they don't have many shot creators. And when you take on a defense like this, 
that's where your problems lead. But Curry had a great point in that clip when he talked about attacking in transition because the Warriors actually did have success in attacking in transition. Some of the numbers from game one, Warriors, 1.4 points per play in transition off of live rebounds. So just just rebounding and running, right? Snatching and running. And that, that worked out well for them. They added 3.1 points per 100 plays in that facet of their offense. So that's what you kind of look at here. The transition, that'll work. Statistically, it did work for you off of live rebounds. But the other ways in which you're doing this, how are you going to attack them? It would lead me to believe, and we're going to get to player props in the second hour, it would lead me to believe that a guy like Kevon Looney is up for a pretty big game because you can look at him and look at what happened in the Dallas Mavericks series and say, this guy's a pretty good slipper when it comes to setting screens and then slipping out of them, rolling to the basket, had some pretty good games against the Mavericks because they were setting him up for it. They worked out pretty well. That's why Steph Curry racked up the assists in that series. So maybe that's something to look at here in terms of player props and how they're going to handle this. But you do wonder how that's going to work. And here's the other side of this when it comes to, I guess not the other side, but the, the another aspect to think about when it comes to this second game. And I want to hear from Emi Odoka on this one, because one of the biggest issues that the Warriors had, and I mentioned one of the lineups I didn't like, the ER, at one point Steve Kerr put out Draymond Green and Andre Iguodala. And with about eight minutes left, there's a play in which Draymond Green gets the ball in the corner, no defender within six feet. Tatum does crash down on him, but he can hit, he can take a shot if he wants to, and he'll be open. Passes it up to Andre Iguodala at the top of the key. There's no defender within 10 feet. Andre Iguodala passes up that shot, and eventually Clay Thompson hits a tough jumper. But those are two wide-open three-point attempts by two guys on the floor who can't take them, won't take them. Those are some troublesome offensive possessions. And Ime Udoka talked about this during media availability the other day, which is we want to make Draymond Green a scorer. Yeah, it's a big part of it. Um, you know, we were comfortable with pretty much all of our wings or guards on him. Uh, like I said, we are a bigger team and a physical team as far as that. So we don't feel it's a cross match with Marcus by any means or a mismatch there. And the bottom line is we put Marcus on bigs throughout the season to switch on to their guards at times. And so that's something in our back pocket that we feel comfortable doing. Um, knowing he's one of their main initiators and getting everybody involved. And Marcus has such great recognition of when to switch on to guys, the communication and kind of take things away. So that's something that we go to late in games a lot. And then in general, um, you know, helping often when it's appropriate and trying to make him be more of a scorer and understanding it's, it's a tough one. You help off, but he's going right into a dribble handoff action or a pin down action. You have to be able to help and get back. And that's one thing we harped on coming into the series and they did a good job last game. And it's an awesome point, too, there that you can I just say also, by the way, Yudoka, in terms of these postgame pressers, he's freaking great. He's great. Like you should sit back and watch them because he gives you a lot of detail. Um, but when you talk about like the Marcus Smart thing that he's bringing up there, like, yeah, we're fine switching somewhat smaller Marcus Smart on the six foot six and bigger Draymond Green because like, what's he going to do? He's not really a low post player. He's not great and gifted around the basket. You look at some of his numbers in terms of his shooting within four feet of the basket. Draymond Green's never been an effective finisher within four feet or in the restricted area. You saw some of those shortcomings there. It's not a threat to shoot. So then when you're talking about defensively in a situation, you know, if you need to help off of a guy, Draymond Green's going to be the guy you help off of there. So then it clogs up the floor even more. It makes it a little bit harder for some of the guys around him. That's the other type of thing here when you're talking about Draymond Green. His role now in this second game, is he going to be just as aggressive and taking these shots? Because they're going to be gear for him. And if he is, is he actually going to hit them? It's not Draymond Green who hit multiple threes and, and had a massive game in game seven against the Cavaliers in that, that finals in which they eventually lost. This is a different Draymond Green who looks like when he shoots the ball, he's got a backpack on, right? The kid from recess is walking home and he's like, hey, let me get a shot up real quick. Like, that's Draymond Green now. And it doesn't really look that comfortable. And if you're the Celtics, you're more than comfortable in those types of situations helping off of them. And I do wonder, too, even if Gary Payton II comes back, 
he is he is more of a consistent shooter than Draymond Green, but he's also a guy that you're going to feel comfortable helping off of defensively, and that just just doesn't help what the Warriors want to do uh, on offense. But we'll have more on this, and we're going to hear a little bit more too. We'll have Steve Kerr, Clay Thompson a little bit later as we talk about player props and some bounce backs for guys like Clay Thompson, for Jordan Poole, some of their player prop numbers, and how that looks as we kind of move forward here into Game Two, and some angles on a couple of player props. I alluded to one of them, but we won't, don't want to give away too much of that angle so that'll be in the second hour we got a good set of guests in the second hour but when we come back we're going to change gears a little bit here away from the nba finals let's talk a little nba draft rafael barlow director of scouting nba big board is going to join us next Now here's your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. All right, you know what to do, man. You got a lot of stuff to bet on. Before you make your next one, though, visit vcid.com. Check the current betting splits data. Betting splits page is going to show you where the money and bets are moving for every game. Now it's updated every 10 minutes. So you can see the changes in all the action. You're going to be able to see where the public is betting based on the number of tickets, where the money doesn't match the public opinion. You can check out not just today's action, but future events as well. Betting splits, another way. VEASAN's here to make you smarter, better year-round. Check out today's betting splits for every game of VEASAN.com. How about this? I'm checking it right now. 83% of the handle, 76% of the bets, as my voice croaks out on me for a split second, uh, on the Warriors, minus 4.5 here today. So the uh, public very much in favor of the Golden State Warriors evening this series up. We'll get back to the NBA Finals in the next hour, but let's talk a little NBA draft as we've been hitting on this as we get closer and closer. Rafael Barlow is nice enough to give us some time today. Director of scouting, NBA Big Board is the spot, uh, a place that I just recently discovered. It's an awesome spot to get ready for the NBA draft and more. And Rafael's with us now. And uh, appreciate the time, man. Uh, um, I kind of wanted to start with this, just a general and easy question. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare because right now it is one jabari smith jr who is an overwhelming favorite well over three dollars to be the first overall selection in this draft in NBA drafts, I would think at the top, you tend to get more, hey, I want the best talent as opposed to the best fit. Is Jabari Smith Jr. the best talent in this draft? I find it so surprising that the market thinks he is going to be essentially a cinch to be the first name called. Um, honestly, I think Paolo Bancaro is the best talent in this draft. But yeah. uh, I think overall, I think um, more than likely Jabari Smith is going to be the first pick. 
So is that positional fit? Because, I mean, when you look at it, right, the, the Orlando Magic, they just signed Wendell Carter Jr. to the max, and he looks like he's going to – not a max, but, but a contract extension. He looks like he's going to be a pretty good player. The numbers back that up. He showed some pretty good game uh, between him and Franz Wagner, their rookie from last year. So is it just more positional that Jabari Smith Jr. can come in and fit with the pieces that are already there for Orlando then? I mean, I think that's a tough choice for Orlando no matter who they select. I think there's a lot of redundancy in their roster. Jabari Smith is there. Therefore, I think that's the same position as yep. Jonathan Isaac and Franz Wagner. So I think no matter who they select, there's going to be a lot of redundancy. But where he does offer immediate help is in outside shooting. Orlando ranked near the bottom of the NBA in three-point shooting, and that's where he can provide some immediate help. But I don't think that he defines their pecking order as far as like who is their best player. I think there's probably five guys that would probably feel like they are the best player on the team. So it's going to be interesting in Orlando. Yes, it is. And they just, they seem to just amass a whole bunch of long dudes uh, in Orlando. They love their long wing type players and they're going to get another one here. So let's talk a, a little bit more about Chet Holmgren then. Am I right in thinking that if he is indeed going to go second, I think he's a dream fit for the Oklahoma city thunder. What do you think? Uh, I don't know if it's a dream fit for me, in my opinion. Um, okay. You know, with, with Chet and Pokemon, you might have the, the skinniest front line in NBA. But, I mean, talent-wise, yeah, I mean, Chet is talented. He can provide some interior help, even though he only weighs like a, a buck 95. But the, the Thunder could use a, a shot blocking or some rebounding. I think Josh Giddy led the team in rebounds last year, so I think Chet can provide some help there. Um as far as like, I mean, I'm, I'm a Van Carroll guy, and I think Van Carroll would provide the best help for them as giving them like a, a rebounder inside scoring as far as on the post and the mid post and ball handling and, and passing. But I mean, I think Chet could help out there also. Is there a shot that Van Carroll leaps these two? Is he maybe the first overall pick? Could he leap Holmgren to become the second overall pick? Or is he pretty locked into three? Because he's like a, he's a minus 650 favorite to go third overall to the Rockets. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I think okay. that Chet and, and Jabari will go one two, but I do think that it would be similar to 2017, where Jason Tatum went third, being the best. That it was going to be similar to with, with Jabari this year. So a couple of the other names that I wanted to throw at you because now you get into the mix, right? The Kings at four, Pistons uh, and Pacers. Jaden Ivey, where do you have Jaden Ivey here in terms of where he could end up? And in the grand scheme of things, where do you have him as a player? Because he seems to be like floating around. And there's some people who think he's worthy of you know, sniffing around the first overall pick. There's some who thinks he can slide to about seven. Where are you at with Jaden Ivey and where you think his optimal fit could be? So I, I think he'll go number four. I mean, there's a there's some rumblings that Oklahoma City really likes him, and they could possibly try to move down to four, and Sacramento will move up to two. The only thing that really is kind of concerning to me is that I think he at least needs to start this start his career off to see if he can play the point guard. I would love to see him in a role where he is the primary ball handler. I don't think any team at the top of the draft gives him that immediate to be the primary ball handler. So let's say if Orlando liked him at one, they have too many point guards as is. If he goes to the Thunder, I don't think he'll be their primary because they have Gilgis Alexander and Giddy. If he goes to Houston, um, maybe if they decide to move mm -hmm. on from Kevin Porter, he could be their starting point guard. If he goes to Sacramento, he's not, he's going to have to share ball handling duties with De'Aaron Fox. And if he goes five to Detroit, it's the same thing with Kate Cunningham. So he's going to have to play at least 
in my opinion, based off of how the rosters are right now, he's going to have to play off the ball some. And I think if there was a team that had like a clear cut need for a point guard, he could go higher, but I, I think he goes fourth. Okay. I like it. So him and the other, a really intriguing name at the, near the top of the draft, Shaden Sharp. What, what do you make of Sharp and just the, the mystery around him? We haven't really seen that much, but the talent is there. You see some of the numbers that he self-reported and some of the footage of him out there. Is he worth a risk for a potential top five selection here? Because for some mock drafters, he is moving up the board, it seems. I mean, it's interesting to see him moving up the board because based off of what? You know yeah. what I mean? Honestly, yep. based off of what what reason? So I was at his pro day, and I mean, unless you were there, I don't, I don't. I'm not saying his pro day wasn't impressive. I mean, you saw the physical tools, and you saw, you know, you know everything that they say he has as far as the athleticism and size. But he was playing against nobody, so I, it's kind of, at least for me, it's kind of hard to see somebody's stock rising when there isn't really any competition and, you know, he didn't play at Kentucky mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's just all based off of how he played last summer. And I guess he played a little bit this summer. I mean, this season, first semester in high school, but it's just kind of interesting to see somebody's draft stock skyrocketing with. So, I mean, but I mean, he is very talented. He is intriguing. And I think just maybe it depends on the general manager. If it's a general manager that wants to swing for the fences, I could see him going high as four. Or if it's somebody that has job security that may have a long-term contract that doesn't need yep. a rookie to come in and contribute right away to help them get an extension, then I think he could, you know, he could end up going high there also. But it, it's a wild card. It's a mystery. And somebody's going to swing for the fences mm-hmm. with him. Yep, and they're either going to look really smart or really dumb, right? So it's going to be pretty fascinating to see where he ends up. All right, let me ask you about one of my favorite guys then. And he seemed to be a fringe top 10 dude, but some of the later, uh, some of the most recent mock drafts I've read have him creeping up too. Uh, Benedict Matherin, what do you make of him as a player and and where could he end up? Because I I really like his game, I like his shot, super high release point, feel like he's got like a a lot of potential in the NBA, but where are you at with him? And is he safely nestled inside the top 10? Yeah, I, I think he's a top 10 pick. I mean, I don't okay. see many situations where he falls outside of the top 10. I mean, he can shoot the ball. He's athletic. At the very minimum, he is a 3 and D floor spacer that can score in transition. But he showed flashes of being able to put the ball on the floor, some ball handling, able to create his own shot and make plays for others. And if he can continue to to make strides on like the ball handling and the playmaking, then, I mean, the sky's the limit. And he could end up being one of the top players in this draft in in five years. So one of the things that came down, I think this was, what day was this? Uh, This was about five days ago or so. Um, Terquavon Smith out of NC State, he decides to pull out of the NBA draft. He's going back to school. Was that surprising to you? Because everything I had read, it seemed like there were a lot of heads that were turning about watching this kid and that they were intrigued by him being a potential first-round pick. Uh, is it surprising to see him go back to school to you? Where were you on him? Yeah, one super surprise was a lot to go in the first round, in my opinion. And there were some other guys that stayed in the draft that I feel like it's more risky for them to stay in the draft. But on the other hand, I thought the NIL would kind of make it so a lot of guys choose to go to school, especially if they feel like they can make 
money in college, like six figures in college, and then come back and improve their draft stock. But from everything that I've heard is that Terquavion is looking to do the Jaden Ivy route, where you know Ivy would have been a mid to late first round pick last year. He came back to school, and now he's going to end up being a, a top five pick more than likely. So from everything I've heard that he's bet on himself, but the NIL gives him a cushion to make money while he's in school, improving his draft stock. NBABigBoard.com is a spot very much worth it as we get ready for the NBA draft. Isn't Raphael Barlow, Barlow 500 up on Twitter. Raphael, we're up against it, but appreciate a couple minutes today, man. Thank you very much. It was awesome. Uh, problem. Thanks for having me on. You want to talk draft? Let me know. I'll make it happen. You, you got it, man. Thanks a lot. Again, Raphael Barlow, everybody. Check it out. Uh, Barlow 500, 500 up on Twitter. All right, we'll come back. Second hour. You got a lot left to get to in the NBA Finals for Game 2. Talk some player props on the other side. There's a lot of guys and a lot of numbers that are moving. The guy's got some support, and I'll tell you, yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but there's one dude I like over his point total. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.